Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about what's missing, those we leave behind, or who've left us. I mentioned early on that at some point I was going to revisit The Offspring before the end of the year because I wanted to talk about a particular song from their album Ixnay on the Ombre and what that song means to me. And I think what I want to do is just simply begin with a quick quote from the song itself, the song called Gone Away. Maybe in another life, I could find you there, pulled away before your time. I can't deal. It's so unfair. And it feels, and it feels like heaven so far away. And it feels, yeah, it feels like the world has grown cold now that you've gone away. Leaving flowers on your grave show that I still care. But black roses and Hail Marys can't bring back what's been taken from me. I reach to the sky and I call out your name, and if I could trade, I would. There's something about that particular sentiment that I think most of us who've lost a loved one can sympathize with, who've been in a situation where we feel um, a sense of regret, that words that needed to be said weren't said, or that time that was too precious was allowed to slip away. And the offspring communicate that with a sense of desperation and a sense of anger that I do not find to be even remotely inappropriate. I can understand why somebody approaching it, perhaps from a Christian perspective, would um, not like that attitude, would hope for a more um, deeply spiritual maturity than that. But there's a process here. My mother worked with cancer patients for a, a period of her career as a nurse. And one of the things that I learned at a very young age, just from watching her work or you know observing the things that she and my father would discuss about her work, was the notions that we've we've gotten you know as a scientific community from Elizabeth Kubler Ross about the stages of death and dying, and anger is an important one of those stages, as is bargaining. And I think you can hear in the offspring, not just in the tone of voice and in the music, but also just in the words themselves, that sense of, of, of anger and of bargaining, you know, and, and even a little bit of denial going on there. Because I'm talking about my sister here, um, I'm going to struggle to get through this, and I want to acknowledge that right up front, that I, I may take some pauses along the way. There's a reason for it. As you may have noticed here in the very first year of Inappropriate Conversations, I've tried to peg certain things to holidays, and um, that's on purpose. That's not going to continue year over year. I don't intend to um, you know, have a Halloween sort of a focus every single year, or if so, not as directly and obviously as this year where I talked about, well, how do I observe Halloween as a holiday? 
But I couldn't bypass New Year's Eve. Not so much New Year's Day. You know, to me, New Year's Day has always been about family and football and food. But New Year's Eve has always been about my older sister. Uh, her name was Anne, and New Year's Eve was her birthday. And uh, My parents would tell the story literally New Year's Eve with only a few seconds to spare. Because in the United States of America, there are certain tax benefits or tax you know, losses, depending on whether you're born on one side of the 1st of January or the other. And by being born not long before the end of December 31st uh, in that one year, my sister was able to provide the uh, tax deduction to my parents a little earlier without them having to wait a whole calendar year to experience it. But my family had a really odd tradition. And it's one that I think now as an adult with grown children doesn't make much sense to me. I see New Year's Eve as the one day that I would prefer to not be, A, in a restaurant trying to make a reservation for a large group of people, or B, out on the roads driving home anywhere near midnight, um, because it's the one night that I perceive, and maybe this is, you know, maybe there's some urban legend tied up in here, but I don't think so. I think it's the one night where you're more likely to be driving near people who have had drinks when they're driving. I don't want to make any bold accusations about statistics I don't have about how many people drive drunk on that particular night. But when you think about it, if you go to a New Year's Eve party, or if you're at a, at a bar or a club or a fancy restaurant on New Year's Eve, and your goal is to get home as quickly as you can after midnight, the odds are that the last thing you did before you left that establishment and got into your car was finish a drink, that a midnight toast. Now, if the only thing you've had to drink all night is, you know, part of a glass of champagne, you're not really any danger to yourself or the other drivers who might be around you. But if during the course of the evening you've had a few drinks along the way and you've topped that off with a glass or two of champagne, well, it just it's it's a bad formula, I suppose. And yet here we were as a family almost every year taking the group of us, and usually it was at least six people, sometimes more, out to a restaurant, uh, and the kind of restaurant that would have had a, a bar and a club with it, even in a relatively, you know, not a dry state, but a state that um, was very conservative in its alcohol laws and its alcohol policies, we'd be going upscale. We'd be going to a fancy place and hitting that place a little later than we might have intended. I'll talk about reasons why for that in just a minute. But Going out and trying to find a reservation and trying to get through that process of getting seated in a restaurant that's having one of its busier nights of the year. Because back then, the celebration of New Year's Eve tended to be less about people gathering in homes for big parties and celebrations and more about people going out. I don't recall when I was a child whether there were a lot of college football bowl games on New Year's Eve, certainly not at night. I kind of remember somewhere in the mid to late 90s, when you'd started to see football on television in the evening part of New Year's Eve. Because before, I think the, uh, the college football teams and the bowl games that um, support their postseason kind of assumed that there wouldn't be any uh, audience in the evening, that people would be out and about. Well, my sister had one defining character trait when it came to going out and, and celebrating, especially going to restaurants and trying to meet reservation times. And that was that she was not able to be ready to go whenever the time frame was set. We used to joke that the only way we were really going to be able to celebrate her birthday the way everyone, including Anne, wanted to was to tell her that the reservation was 30 minutes or even an hour before it actually was 
so that if she was ready to walk out the door five minutes late for that reservation, we might actually have a shot of getting to the restaurant on time for the reservation. And you didn't want to be late because if you show up at the restaurant having missed the dinner reservation that you set and you find yourself back in first available mode on an extremely busy night, a plan to eat dinner as a family and, and exchange and, and have, have her open birthday presents, that sort of plan might have started at 730. But if you miss your dinner reservation, you're not starting until nine. And if you don't start till nine, you're not getting out until around the time when you don't want to be in the midst of all those other drivers. So New Year's Eve, to me, had a couple things about it that were true every year. We were going to go somewhere nice. We were going to be together as an entire family, because usually even when my uh, older brother went off to college first, he's going to be back for the winter break at that point in time. You got together as a family, and you know you're going to be late. You know there's going to be a lot of stress and a lot of tension getting there. But you also know that you're going to be out uh, for the night, that when you get back, It'll either be right before the ball drops in New York City on television and, and you, know, you get that toast at the end of the evening or immediately after because you might be so far off schedule that you might be celebrating the actual turning of the new year when you're still at, at the restaurant or, or the club or whatever establishment you might be at. So my sister had one of those, um, I, I think a lot of people might say it's a bad day to have a birthday. It's not as bad as maybe Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, but it's one of those days where um, – your birthday is not the only activity that is the focus. But on the other hand, it was also a good day to have a birthday because we were all, we always had a built-in excuse to go out and establishments were always ready for you. So I can't really think of New Year's Eve without thinking about my older sister. The reason I struggle and the reason I've called this, you know, what's missing, um, those I've missed, things I've missed, things we leave behind is that um, my sister died. Something like a decade ago, I'm going to be intentionally vague on the times and the places. And she died young, not yet 40 years old. And so with these passing years, I'm hitting milestones in my life again, not unlike with my father, where there are things that I would have liked to have shared with my older sister that are just not available to me anymore because she's no longer with us, no longer available for that. Now, it's been a blessing that her husband has... It found a way to move through it, uh, moved on, remarried. My my nephew from my older sister has a, a kind of a stepbrother now. So there's a new family there, and that's wonderful. But there's also a disconnect there that, that's unique in, in my family. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about my responsibilities for that, because I do feel direct responsibilities for that. But before I do anything like that, I want to talk a little bit just about you know my sister herself. And you know the things that I remember about her that are so powerful, and the reason that she's still an important force in my life today. And I want to do so by referring to a term called deontology. Now, deontology uh, could be defined loosely as duty. It's sort of an approach, an approach to the knowledge that we've been given, and an ethical way of, of addressing the issues that we face. And the easiest way to describe it is the difference between an ends versus the means approach and a means versus the ends approach. So the opposite of deontology would be somebody who does things because 
they know what they have to do to get what they want. Their eyes are on the prize. They're all about the, um, the end, the end result. And somebody who has more of a, of a, a duty-based approach takes a look at things in a different way. And they're going to do, quote-unquote, the right thing, even if the right thing doesn't necessarily get them a positive result or makes it more difficult for them to actually get the ultimate result that they're looking for. And my sister was one of those people who I believe approached the world from the strictly deontological perspective of saying, I know what the right thing to do is, and that is what I'm going to do. Now, that has both some negative aspects and some positive aspects, because on the negative side, when you approach things from that perspective and your personal relationships happen that way, then you can, you can kind of make the people that you love feel micromanaged. There's a song that I think about uh, from my sister that resonates with me much more powerfully than The Offspring or anything else that I'm going to talk about today. And it's a song by a group called The Innocence Mission that I want to play a little clip of. But before I do that, I think I'm going to try to share the lyrics all the way through. And I'm going to try to get through the lyrics first so that if I can't do it, and trust me, more often than not, I fail here. This is where I can't get it done without really faltering. I can just take it. I can stop let the uh, let the band speak for themselves and then pick it back up on the other side. But when I first um, heard the song and read the lyrics that um, you know, the band was responsible for, Karen Paris is the singer of the band, and, and she has a kind of a, a lilting, waif-like, angelic quality to her voice, which frankly doesn't help me distance myself emotionally from the words. It, it makes the words even more powerful in some ways. But she's singing the song from the perspective of being the older sister who struggles to let her younger brother live his life. And that the challenge for her is, can I let him make mistakes? Um, how, how do I deal with the fact that I want to intervene? And I, I know that my interventions are unwelcome and that it just creates more problems and that in some ways, yeah, there's, there's no better way to get a teenage boy to misbehave than to tell him what he shouldn't do. I mean, if you want him to do something, just tell him not to do it, you know. And it's inside the context of that kind of relationship that it really hits home for me. I used to joke, and I'm not 100% sure I was wrong, but I, I used to joke that um, my sister, on some levels, uh, was so disapproving of any drinking that I might have done, even at college age when you know having, a, having beers at a party or whatever was perfectly legal, that she might not have minded if I'd actually gotten in trouble with the authorities because, you know, in her mind, putting a stop to that nonsense was a good idea. It's a deontological approach. So let me share the lyrics of the song Black Sheep Wall by Innocence Mission from their very first album called The Innocence Mission. And we'll see if I can, if I can get through these lyrics uh, in this context of saying, you know, this is an older sister singing a song about and, and even many ways to her younger brother, and then I'll share actually kind of what the music sounds like, because um, I mentioned before that Ixnay on the Ombre is my favorite you know, album by The Offspring, and I hadn't really shared any of the music from that album before. If I'm going to pick an Offspring album, that's the one. Well, you know what? This early self-titled album by The Innocence Mission is, is an even more precious recording to me. Not necessarily easy to find, but well worth tracking down. Here are the words to Black Sheep Wall. This is how I love you. I wish for a shade I can pull. I feel so afraid watching you grow up. This love hurts too much. And I try to build a wall so that I don't have to see you fall. And I pray, go away from my thoughts. Why do you keep coming back over Black Sheep Wall? And says never fear, oh boys, 
I predicted, I can't, I can't do it. Here's the lyrics to the, the verse that I, I, I really cherish the most, part of which I just played. Oh, I'd love to hold you close, but I play it cool and keep my thoughts in a jar marked dangerous. And everyone says, never fear. All boys his age experiment with their lives. But my eyes want to close you out. I'll close you out. Why do you keep coming back over Black Sheep Wall? Brother Black Sheep, love is strong. There's a shepherd out in every storm, and he's not afraid of a little rain. Why am I? Why do I keep building up this Black Sheep Wall? Oh, I love you so. Do you really know how much, how deep, black sheep? This is how I love you, with closed eyes, with turned back, with distance. Beyond any doubt, the emotional reaction that I get from the song every single time is that ending point. Because I think that I would describe our relationship as being one that has a lot of closed eyes and a lot of turned back and a lot of distance, and a lot of that is because of the negative qualities of this sort of deontology, where my sister's approach meant that she was either going to have to unsuccessfully intervene on things that she disapproved of, or she was going to have to close her eyes and turn her back and bite her tongue, which is so often what she did. I had a, a religious retreat that I went on, you know, not really that many months after my sister died. In retrospect, it was kind of a foolish thing to be engaging in that particular kind of prayer and meditation within just a few months of my sister's death. But to be honest with you, I was in so much denial about it that it never really occurred to me that I was going to be in the grieving process in the middle of all that, that the the grief was going to get in the way. It didn't occur to me. And one of the things that my my other sister, my younger sister and I uh, talked about at that time was that she was a little bit perhaps um, envious of the fact that I was in that opportunity, that I had taken the opportunity to confront that grief in such a face-to-face way. And that for her, the emotional response that I had to my older sister and that, you know, songs like this and emotions like this running so deeply was, was something that, that I shouldn't feel bad about. That I, that it's, it's something that in some ways she might have been a little bit even, I don't know, maybe jealous of. But I told her, I said, you know, don't, don't misinterpret me. My sense that my sister and I had an incredibly powerful link and it was represented in, in words like this where I think that she did probably have. Uh, and probably did have some thoughts and feelings that she'd locked in a jar that she'd marked dangerous and that nobody was going to be able to tell her that the things that I was dealing with and going through as a teenage boy in that era of American history were normal, that that wasn't necessarily uh, representing a great relationship. It was simply representing a dynamic that was perhaps unique to the fact of being older sister, younger brother. Because back then, at that period in time, with the drinking ages uh, typically being more of uh, 18 than 21 as they are today, you know, there was more dynamic involved. And I had a lot of friends who, who used illegal drugs very casually. I personally didn't. But I had a lot of friends who did. And again, this, this approach from a sense of duty, this, um, this way of living your life from a moral perspective, can lead you to take a disapproving stance to even befriending or hanging out with people who might be doing things that you disapprove of. So the fact that I was kind of running in a crowd that she didn't uh, approve of was one of the issues. And so that's comes from the negative qualities of her deontological approach. 
but it wasn't all negative. There were positive qualities as well, and, and perhaps the most positive quality that I would assign to my sister's approach to me and to really the world was her faith. I would describe her as being a giant of the faith, and of all the members of my family that I've known personally, um, known better than perhaps my, my grandmother, who, you know, there's the distance of, of the miles between us because we didn't live in the same city that my grandmother lived in, and the age difference, of course, and just the relationship of grandmother to grandson is not the same as brother and sister. I think if you leave out my grandmother on my mother's side, that my sister Anne is probably the best example of somebody from whose faith I took a great deal of inspiration, because the um, the deontology helped her in that regard. She had a very simple and clear approach to it. But her journey, really, is the other aspect of it, because she had to endure some things that I frankly haven't had to endure. And we always wonder about the problem of pain, the problem of evil in the world, the difficulty in managing loss, all of these things which can be faith-crushing for so many people. And my sister kind of modeled the opposite, that through the things that she endured, she never lost that faith. And in me, anyway, did more to inspire it than, than to challenge it. I didn't come away from this particular kind of loss of losing a father and a sister in quick, you know, within a decade of each other. I didn't take that as a sign that um, the universe owed me something. And part of it is the way my sister managed it. Just to describe her journey in some brief detail, uh, there's some things about her life that I won't discuss. And I guess what I'll say about that is that I think my sister took her morality seriously and she earned that right. She did not have necessarily the easiest run through junior high school and high school. And some of the things that she experienced there, I think, give, gave her great credibility if she was willing to say that she understood the right path and the wrong path. She wasn't uh, speaking from an ivory tower. Let's put it that way. My sister found out not long after she got married, and again, you know, I, I, hold, I hold my sister's husband in the highest possible esteem, but they found out around the time that they decided that they were going to have kids that they might not be able to. So my sister had to endure that, that uncertainty of wanting to be a mother and then perhaps having that dream taken away from her because around the time that they were ready to start having kids, they had to deal with cancer. And the cancer that they had to deal with uh, initially was, was not her. It was, it was her husband, and she was a supporter in that situation, being the spouse trying to help your spouse recover and survive from cancer. And she, again, modeled that behavior from at least my perspective from, you know, a state away, you know, a few hours away, but not even in the same state at that point in our, in our lives, that she was really very effective at that and that her husband did recover fully and they did uh, get pregnant. And then she goes through this roller coaster ride. And it, and it seems to me in memory that it was just a very few weeks, but it might have been months, but it was still just a roller coaster ride of thinking maybe we'll never be able to get pregnant to getting pregnant having a child, just being in the process of beginning to, you know, to get that child through that, that infant period where there's always some, you know, uncertainty and some fear in terms of, you know, now I've got a newborn and you've got all those, you know, the newborn checkups, all that other sort of things. And, and first time parents in particular uh, get very obsessed about everything in terms of, you know, you know, percentile of normalcy in terms of height and weight and so forth and so on. She was right in the midst of that stage in terms of her, of her son, my nephew, being very, very young when she found out that she had cancer. And her cancer, over the course of a, of a couple of years or so, moved from breast cancer to lymph nodes to other vital organs. 
And at some point, it became pretty clear when you, when you, despite our faith, despite our hopes, and despite you know very good medical care and a lot of uh, personal strength, it became obvious when the cancer was moving, when there was this metastasizing process going on, that this was going to be fatal. This was going to be permanent. The last time I saw her was Easter of the year she died in the month of April, and it was a trip that led me and my. Uh, my oldest child to have discussions about the Easter bunny because you can't really celebrate Easter in another place without having to move the presence that you are going to give from parent to child and, and have some of those conversations pop up. And so the, one of the things I'll remember about that trip, you know, the last Easter we celebrated with my sister, the last time I saw my sister was that we ended up spending a lot of time as a family dealing with some of the things that, you know, some of the family drama that you might expect to deal with, you know, all positive, none of it negative. But the next time I was in town was for a funeral. I do remember, though, um, some of the conversations that, you know, I had, you know, again, with my child talking about what does it mean for religious holidays like Christmas, like Easter? What does it mean for parents to be um, giving gifts and giving gifts perhaps surreptitiously? And, and we talked a little bit about some of the things that I think I learned from my sister that the as a Christian, I would believe that the gifts that God has given us are too great to be comprehended by anyone who is either you know past the very, very young period of childhood when everything is awesome and and wonder I guess would be the word you'd use in terms of uh, everything in the world being new, everything in the world being fresh. There comes a certain age where between perhaps pre confirmation just before the age of accountability as the the ancient church used to call it. And adulthood, where that sense of wonder um, can't be fully explained yet and also is very hard to duplicate. And you know, to me, that's a lot of kind of where you'd see the uh, particular American nuances of celebrations around Christmas and Easter and the gift-giving associated with it. The gift-giving is an effort to try to convey a great unmerited love to people. Uh, when they're too young to understand what that great unmerited love might be from a cosmological perspective. And, you know, again, a lot of that perspective came from my sister. I think my sister did a good job of overcoming platitudes. She was never going to be the person who was going to ban the celebration of Santa Claus from her kid's Christmas. But on the other hand, she also wasn't going to just accept that there had to be some sort of a secular divide and that you separate Santa Claus from the rest of Christmas as far as it goes. And the one conversation that I remember having with her that stands out to me was one where I had called and shared with her the kind of things that you get from people when you when you share about your sister having cancer and the cancer appearing to be terminal. And, and one of the quotes was somebody who shared with me that um, the old line, and, and I'm not saying this is theologically inappropriate, but my sister had a different perspective than perhaps Corey Ten Boom does, the notion that God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. That uh, if if you've faced a challenge uh, in this life, if you're if you're in a time of trial and testing, that with the challenge God also gives you what you need to overcome that challenge. That the notion that He's always with you, and again, this is consistent with some of the writings of Corey Ten Boom coming out of her Holocaust experience. But my sister corrected me very quickly and very very obligingly, I guess would be the way I'd word it, and said, you know what. It is wrong for anyone to suggest that God gave me cancer. That was her, her quote. And then although she respected the idea that her faith gave her tremendous strength to overcome all sorts of things, that she strongly disagreed with the very naive perception in her mind that people have in the world 
that God is responsible for death and disease and that the evil in the world can be laid at his feet. And her attitude was that we live in a fallen world, that we're frail, mortal people, and that sickness and disease is, is part of the you know, world that we're living in. It's part of the process of creation unfolding, the process of things you know devolving, for want of a better word. So her perspective was, no, you, you can't lay that. You can't lay that on anyone's feet, that she's willing to accept that God is going to help her through whatever it is she's experiencing. She's unwilling to blame um, the natural process that she's dealing with. And she kind of put it to me that that was a little bit closer to a primitive superstition than it was a genuine, healthy, and mature faith. These are the kinds of conversations we had and the kind of conversations that we had about her cancer that she wasn't getting from anybody else. And maybe that was inappropriate. Maybe it was my very first ever inappropriate conversation. I had that presented to me that maybe you shouldn't be speaking with a cancer patient in this way. But my sister's perspective was different. Her perspective was that sometimes it's nice to talk about these things, and nobody else who loved her was willing to speak to her about those things. No one was going to engage her intellectually about those matters because they were always handling her with an extra soft pair of gloves. And one of the things that my sister and I did with and for each other, for better or for worse, was we always tended to have the gloves off. Sometimes that meant that we were speaking harsh words to each other about whether it's appropriate to to drink a beer at that party when you're not 18 years old yet. Or sometimes it meant, you know, conversations like this about whether or not, well, I won't go there. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Sorry to bail on you mid-sentence there. I guess the problem is... That for me, as the loved one of somebody dealing with a terminal illness, I never got any good advice on how to handle the powerlessness. It's a very, for want of a better word, emasculating feeling. I, I say that from a distinctly male perspective, but I'm hoping everyone understands what I mean. There's absolutely nothing you can do. And once it becomes clear that short of praying, short of offering to help, short of being there when you can, which in my case was seldom because I didn't live anywhere near nearby. By the time we hit her funeral, I had moved several states away. I was in a different time zone. I was uh, I was in a much different situation. It was a plane flight to get home, not a car ride. It was not a car ride that I, I could successfully have taken in a single day, at least not as a single driver. I guess it'd be far too easy for me to blame it on geography, when truth is I was also kind of emotionally far away in some ways. And maybe the right way for me to describe it is to hearken back to the lyrics of The Innocence Mission, and say, yeah, maybe it was my turn to put up a wall. Maybe I had some feelings and some fears that I didn't want to share with this cancer patient and that I'd marked those I'd marked those emotions as dangerous and bottled them up, maybe in much the same way that my sister had you know, marked a lot of her emotions as dangerous and bottled them up when I was a teenager. And that sort of separated us. It broke things down in a way that was not good, and it's created in me an incredible sense of regret. Because 
for all the conversations I've ever had with any other family member about how nice it was that Anne and I had a couple of conversations along the way about things that I thought were of grave theological importance, um, things that I didn't understand that she as a cancer patient could explain to me much better than anybody else could in a way that I would listen to more closely and carefully and effectively than I would listen to anybody else or that I would glean from any book I might try to read, that despite those moments in time, there was a lot I didn't get to know. Not just in the intervening years since she's gone, but even in the years before, there was a lot of things that I didn't find out that I certainly could have. Because despite the age difference between my father and I when he died, being a place where I didn't have the questions yet, because I hadn't had enough life experience yet, um, just barely being a father of my first child, not having necessarily too much ground underneath me in terms of changing jobs and selling one house, moving into another house, those sort of things that I missed out on that, that my father would have been a great resource for. In this case, you're talking about siblings. We're basically the same age, married at the same time. Um, I had kids before she did, despite the fact that she was older, but we had we now had kids at the same time. Those things, there was no reason to wait. We, we had life experiences we could have shared right then and right there. And I'm going to hearken back to this theme later on in the show, but I deeply and truly regret the questions that I didn't get to ask and any answers that she might have needed that I didn't get to provide because she didn't get to ask either. And that's what's missing. It's not just the people that we've left behind. It's the ideas. It's the interaction. It's the emotions. It's the growth and maturity that would have happened that didn't happen because something as terrible as cancer came in and shut it all down. My plan for the different drummer today is not to use uh, drum music or uh, soundtrack music with drums in it to introduce, to sort of play the different drummer in and play the different drummer out. In this case, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set the different drummer aside using this man's own music. You're going to see why, as I get into it in a little bit, why I've picked this particular different drummer today. Uh, if only for the inspirational example of somebody who's found a better way to be there for a family member through terminal illness, not just during that loved one's lifetime, during a beloved sister's lifetime at the end when, when the illness was really making it a challenge and making it difficult, our different drummer today has found a way to honor and to carry forth the legacy of a loved one even after death. Please listen to some of the music of Tony Pucci. One fine day, out of the blue, the loveliest face will recognize you. One fine day, eventually, worlds collide.
The selections you've heard are from a compact disc called Songs for Jenny. Songs for Jenny is a musical project that Tony Pucci put together to honor his sister. Um, started during the during the latter part of her lifetime and continued after she was gone. Now available uh, at songsforjenny.com, www.songsforjenny, with a Y, dot com. Here are the artists that you heard, because what Tony did was he put together the music and then had artists from around the world, people that he'd encountered in musical collaborations before, write lyrics and record the vocal tracks. So the common theme throughout the, uh, the disc musically is the contributions of Tony Pucci, inspired by the life and, you know, unfortunately, the, the dying and eventually the death of his sister of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. But first, let me introduce the artists that you heard in the order that you heard them. Arno Soho and a song called One Fine Day. Leah Penavaya and Your Smile Never Fades. Makaras Penn, 24 Hours. Tim E. Bandit Poles, Can't Fight It. And finally, Carla Hansen, Motherly Wisdom. These are just a few of the tracks on the Songs for Jenny, the 17-track CD. And as we close today, I'll play you one more. This one I'll play in its entirety, and I'll give you a pretty good feeling for why. First off, from the Songs for Jenny musical um, sleeve, and from the website, I believe, as well, here's Tony Pucci's words. My sister Jenny passed away quietly in her sleep in May 2008 after suffering from ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, for five years. Her bravery in facing the terrible effects of ALS had been an inspiration to her entire family. It is my hope that someday no family or person will have to endure such a tragedy in the future. Hopefully, Songs for Jenny, the CD, and the website, will be a big step in making that day a reality. Life is too short, people. Love fiercely those you hold dear. Peace and love. Tony Pucci. Well, who is Tony Pucci? It's not easy to answer that question. Tony is a uh, singer, songwriter, guitarist, poet, and podcaster. He has more than 100 full-length CDs that he has released, five or more books of poetry, and uh, the podcasts, more than one podcast that he hosts, are part of my regular listening pattern. Fatal Interview is uh, a spoken podcast with uh, Tony's thoughts his poems, uh, reflections, and at times, you know, his anger and his pet peeves as well. And the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records podcast is a, you know, podcast of music where the same kind of independent artists who have taken advantage of the latest breakthroughs in technology, the digital age of music, if you will, but also the internet to say, you know, that some things that they put out, they can put out themselves, self-release, self-publish. And if you go to www.songsforjenny.com, you'll find lots of music, not just the actual you know, hard copy of the Songs for Jenny CD, which I'm holding in my hand right now, but also um, things that are available for download. If, for want of a better word, best of collections from periods in Tony's life where he has put together his own music, both as the singer-songwriter uh, and the musical performer, and, uh, and other collaborative projects. With 100 CDs to your credit, you know that Tony is dabbling in lots of different projects at any given time. And he often refers to these as a musical diary, that even if, um, even if he was you know, recording for no one who wanted to download and listen to the songs, which is absolutely not the case, I'm one of the people who are downloading and listening to these songs, um, he would still do it because it's from an artistic perspective, there's that moment where that idea is inside you and it's more harmful to you to keep it inside than it is to put it out. 
and if you if you write that that poem on the wall and no one no one walks past it and those who do walk past it don't stop to read it there's still a certain value a certain healthiness to having the poem escape your mind anyway to get out there and that's a lot of what you'll hear on the podcast for fatal interview you'll find all things tony pucci at the website www.tonypucci.com um, just go there and take a look you'll see links for the songs for jenny website a place for content contact comments partial discography i've got to assume it's not complete the link to the fatal interview show but also pictures and poems and other things uh, again uh, lots of irons in the fire the pollyanna cowgirl records podcast can be found at www.simplysyndicated.com on songs for jenny as i mentioned before right now at least on the day that i'm doing this recording i'm seeing five extra analog some of them are analog some of them are digital collections of tony's music and all the proceeds for the sales of songs for jenny and these other items are going to be going to the als association of minnesota after all that's where jenny lived now i'm going to attempt to pronounce this word i may get it wrong the amyotrophic lateral sclerosis otherwise known as lou gehrig's disease described on wikipedia which is you know not exactly you know a physician's desk reference but here you go as a motor neuron disease, it's a progressive, fatal, neurodegenerative disease caused by the degeneration of motor neurons, nerve cells in the central nervous system that control voluntary muscle movement. And essentially what happens in the degeneration is that you lose the ability to direct muscle movement and you almost end up kind of trapped in your own non-functioning body with typically, there can be dementia associated with this, but typically with a properly functioning brain. So you're really sort of kind of caught there. You're really sort of stuck in what I would describe as the worst form of limbo. Um, it's always a painful thing to watch somebody deal with Alzheimer's disease, where a person with an otherwise healthy body is dealing with a brain that's um, got dementia and not functioning properly. In some ways, ALS is, is the opposite of that very terrible coin. I can't do enough to urge people to go and download or to pick up a hard copy of the CD Songs for Jenny. The labor of love that's present there, both in the musicianship and in the collaboration from the, uh, from the singers and songwriters, is really, truly impactful. I'm going to talk about the one that personally means the most to me uh, here in just a minute. But just to kind of give you a sense for kind of how, how much of an impact did this have on Jenny. Jenny has the disease couple years in progress, and Tony makes a decision that what he wants to do is put together the CD in honor of, his, honor of his sister. A lot of the work was done, or at least started, pretty well underway while she was alive. Jenny was familiar with the uh, song by Harry Flowers on the CD called Air Apparent, and she heard the song by Leah called Your Smile Never Fades. On the website, there may still be a music video up for that song, I kind of view it, when I listen to the CD, I sort of think of that as being the lead single. If you think from the old perspective of, well, how did the old music business function, <clears throat> no, no question about it, Your Smile Never Fades would have been the lead single from that particular album. And she got to hear those tracks. And, you know, you know just to quote Tony a little bit, because I actually asked him some of, the, some of the details, because I wanted to get it right, for one thing, but I also really wanted to understand, you know, how well aware was Jenny of the things that were being done? Did she know the project? Did she have a sense of its progress? Because she died before the CDs, actually, at least before I got my copy of the CD. And Tony said, you know, she'd often tell people, do you know what my brother is doing for me? She showed remarkable strength 
in the face of you know, what can only be described as her fate. And she viewed the CD as a way that she could continue to have a positive impact on the world after she was gone through this collaborative process of the work being done, not just by Tony, but by you know, another 16, 17 musicians, again, literally from all over the world. I played the first track on the medley at the beginning was by Arno Soho. He's French and has not only contributed to the album, but has contributed um, in some ways to uh, quotations, testimonials, reviews of the end result, having heard not only his own work, of course, but everyone else. The song 24 Hours that I played by Makara's Pen is not on the Songs for Jenny CD. It's a more recent track that's going to be available as, as an upcoming digital download for one of the better word, a Songs for Jenny 2. And if that's an indication of what we have in store for us on the second Songs for Jenny CD, then I, I can't possibly be looking forward to it any more than I am. I, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful song. The, um, the Tim Bowles track, Can't Fight It, was perhaps the last song that made it into the collection. So it would be an example of one of the ones that um, the Jenny wouldn't have had a chance to hear the completed mix of. And the Carla Hansen song, Motherly Wisdom, just to complement the track a little bit, reminds me in the best ways of the early 70s progressive rock band Curved Air, and particularly the vocalist styling of their lead singer, Sonia Christina. I hear um, in the kind of the background vocal and, and really the almost otherworldly quality of her voice, songs like Peace of Mind and It Happened Today. Um, I hold Curved Air in incredibly high esteem, and you know, so to me I'm hoping that Carla and Tony would see that as a compliment. There's something really wonderful about the common thread of the music throughout the CD being from one musician, and a musician with a, a lot of varied interests and talents, but also the variety of having all of those different singers most of whom contributed their own words. You have all the different writers as well, looking at just to the project from a different perspective. So it isn't, uh, you know, it isn't to me. It's not a down CD at all, and that's one of the things that Arno uh, talked about on the website. That you know, this isn't a negative thing. That that somehow, um, not just Tony, but the other collaborators on the music process have found a way to put together something which takes a look at something as, as potentially terrible and debilitating as losing a loved one to a fatal illness and finding some hope in there anyway and turning that negative into a collateral that can be invested not only into the future hope of curing a disease like ALS, but the future hope of helping people like me deal with the loss. I just can't recommend enough trying out some of the things that Tony's putting out there from an artistic perspective. Capturing the do-it-yourself spirit, which again, I've said many times I admire, but doing so with a real sense of purpose. So what's the sense of purpose that I take from the Songs for Jenny project? Well, first off, my initial thought on buying Songs for Jenny as a CD was, hey, let's, this is a good cause. Let's support this person that I've sort of caught on to online. Um, might not have had a whole lot of direct interaction at the time when I made the decision that, yeah, as soon as that CD hits the street, I want it. And so I'm going to buy it from his website so I can more or less be buying it from him, or at least as close as you can get to that. But again, like my sister's death catching up to me in that religious retreat that I went on all those years ago, I'm listening to this CD for the first time thinking, hey, I'm supporting my friend Tony, and I'm listening to his music, and this is about his relationship with his sister, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, in a way that I never really anticipated, this became a CD about me and my sister as well. I want to play us out for the different drummer segment to the music of an artist named Jen Maniello. She had been 
the lead singer of a Buffalo-based band called Tearwave when they were together, and a group that you know plays the kind of music that I think sometimes people describe as shoegaze music. We've got a lot of musical instrumentation, a lot of moodiness, where a, a sort of a um, of an ethos is being created, and the lead singer's voice can often get melded and mixed in with the lyrics. And I don't want to say hidden behind all that, but you need to work to find the singer's voice, and you need to work to find the lyrics in this particular kind of music. The style of the music of Tearwave is like that, but on this particular track, where she's singing to Tony's music, Jen's voice really comes out and shines. And a lot of people, not just me, have made the comment that they really love the track because of how well you can hear you know, what it is that she's singing and what it is that she's saying. The song that she has written is Regret. And as I play it here in a minute, I think that you can understand kind of from where I'm coming from, my relationship with my sister, my distance from her geographically, uh, if nothing else, when she died, that you know, sometimes it's nice to have a voice, a voice that seems to come from potentially maybe beyond the grave, offering reassuring words like, don't regret a single memory and uh, remember me the way I used to be.
That's from our different drummer this week, Tony Pucci, and his CD, Songs for Jenny, and a particular track by Jen Manganiello called Regret. Beyond any doubt, I've got a heart for music, and music means a lot to me, and sometimes I, I'm going to interpret things in the world in a very special way when I can see them from a musical perspective, and I'm so thankful that this particular song, which was uh, you know, easily my favorite song that was put out in the year 2009, not, not this past year, but the year before that, um, has a great healing quality to it. I'd be very surprised if other people listening to these tracks on the Songs for Ginny CD couldn't find healing as well. That's true whether the powerlessness that you're feeling or the brokenness that you're experiencing is related to the loss of a loved one, or perhaps whether it's related to any sort of thing that creates a sense of disconnectedness between us and others. Can't recommend that particular track, that particular CD, the work in general that Tony has put out there highly enough. There are things that I feel that I'm, that I'm separated from. Those I've missed. Things I've missed. Stuff that's gone away. Years that I've lost behind a black sheep wall. Either because I was the one who was putting up the wall or someone was putting up a wall to protect themselves from being hurt by my actions or my thoughtlessness. There's something in there that is incredibly healing. And at the end of the day, when you're dealing with the loss of a loved one, healing is the most important thing. Thanks for listening.